Hi, this is Nick Whitney, and we've now reached episode 10 of All You Need to Know About European History, an episode dominated by the Lutheran Revolution. Man proposes, God disposes. So it is ironical that Julius II, the warrior pope who worked so hard to restore the power and prestige of Rome and the Roman Church in the early years of the 16th century, should also have played a key role in precipitating the Reformation, Martin Luther's Protestant Revolution. The German monk walked to Rome in 1510 and was appalled by the worldliness and extravagance he encountered there. Work was already underway on Julius's signature project, the tearing down of the 4th century Basilica of St Peter's, begun under Constantine, and its replacement with the biggest church in the world. The costs were eye-watering, and required a massive fundraising effort across Europe, including a particularly aggressive campaign to sell indulgences, that is, get-out-of-jail certificates for dodging the pains of purgatory, in Germany. It was this abuse which was the particular target of the 97 theses which Luther nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in 1517. It is doubtful whether even his mother would have called Martin Luther a nice man. Like all good revolutionaries, he was clever. He studied Hebrew and Greek so as to access the Bible in its original languages. Radical and ruthless, and unrelentingly obdurate. He was also a tormented, depressive and bigot, vehemently anti-Semitic, and untroubled with a social conscience. When the German peasantry took his stand against authority as inspiration for revolt, he urged their crushing by all possible means. But he could recognise corruption and hypocrisy when he saw it, and refused to look the other way. And it is hard to fault his conclusion that the Roman Church had come to exercise its role as intermediary between God and man, largely to increase its own wealth and power. The cult of relics was one such abuse. Luther had a point when he questioned how, when Christ had twelve disciples, eighteen of them could be buried in Germany alone. And Luther was keen to point out that the doctrine of purgatory, which drove the sale of indulgences, had no foundation in scripture. Little of this was new. Luther was building on the teaching of John Wycliffe and the Bohemian Hussites. But unlike those precursors, Luther could exploit the world's first means of mass communication, the printing press. His pamphlets, illustrated by the painter and printmaker Lucas Cranach, went viral. And Luther had a powerful patron, Frederick III, Elector of Saxony, whose court was in Wittenberg. Was Frederick's support for Luther inspired by concern for his immortal soul? Was he convinced by Luther's contentions that true religion lay in the individual's unmediated relationship with God, that the Bible must be available to all in the vernacular, and that salvation depended on faith, not works, works seeming so often to boil down to cash payments to the church? Or was the elector motivated by the reflection that a, a movement which challenged the authority of Rome could only increase his own ability to resist the demands, whether political or pecuniary, of church and holy Roman emperor? 
The speed with which other northern German princes rushed to align themselves with the Protestant platform suggests that it was politics as much as faith that gave the Reformation wings. The Pope responded to Luther's challenge, as the papacy always did, with excommunication. The Emperor Charles V knew where his duty lay and summoned Luther to a diet, an assembly of the imperial states of the empire, at Worms in 1521. As an attempt to intimidate Luther, it failed. Here I stand, he declared. I can do no other. Frederick then spirited Luther into hiding, where he spent his time translating the New Testament into an amalgam of different dialects of the German tongue, thus essentially inventing German as a national language. His revolution spread like wildfire. In Sweden, Gustav Vasa, who had secured Swedish independence from the Danes in 1523, embraced Lutheranism and took the opportunity to nationalise the church's assets. In England, Henry VIII, though asserting continued loyalty to the Catholic faith, followed suit by declaring himself supreme head of the church in England and dissolving the monasteries. Variant strains of Protestantism appeared, more radically Puritan, and policed no longer by a priesthood but by the equally doctrinaire community. In this way, as Norman Davis, supreme historian of Europe, observes, to the old Catholic burden of sin, they added the new burden of keeping up appearances. Switzerland proved a particular nursery of radical Protestantism, with John Calvin in Geneva and Ulrich Zwingli in, in Zurich gaining particular traction. As with the northern princes, receptivity to Luther's doctrine was linked in Switzerland to a, a growing desire for political freedom. Swiss independence from the Holy Roman Empire was not formally recognised until the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia, but the loose precursor confederacy had effectively achieved that status in defeating the Emperor Maximilian in the Battle of Dornach in 1499. Calvinism, in particular, spread far beyond Switzerland, with big followings in France and in the Netherlands and Scotland, where they constituted the Protestant majority. As we saw in the last episode, it was no help to defenders of the true faith that in the years following Julius II, Pope and Emperor should have fallen out again, with the papacy ill-advisedly switching its support behind the French king in the continuing Valois-Habsburg conflict in northern Italy. That strategy became disastrously unstuck with the emperor's crushing defeat and capture of Francis I at Pavia in 1525, followed by the sack of Rome in 1527. With the Pope now firmly in his pocket, the Emperor Charles was graciously pleased to accept papal coronation in 1530 on his 30th birthday, though he made the Pope travel north to Bologna for the purpose. This was the last occasion on which any emperor bothered with this nicety. All future Roman emperors simply styled themselves emperor-elect when so appointed, and left it at that. For Charles, the Bologna coronation was something of a victory lap and it was not just a celebration of his wins in Italy, but also an occasion to thank God for deliverance from the latest Ottoman menace. 
for Suleiman Magnificent had followed up his victory over the Hungarians at Mohacs in 1526 by capturing Pest and had then pressed on through Hungary to reach the very gates of Vienna in 1529. By God's good grace, the siege was hampered by foul weather. The Ottoman heavy guns pulled by camels floundered en route and were soon abandoned. With Italy and the Turkish front stabilised, and the imprimatur of papal coronation, Charles was at last free to turn his attention to combating the Protestant threat. The key was for the papacy to abandon the delights of campaigning and politicking in the fractured Italian political landscape, not to mention its prodigal sponsorship of artistic and architectural projects aimed at its own glorification, and to take an altogether more sober and strategic approach to restoring the power and reputation of the universal church, under, of course, the guidance of the universal monarch. So historians have often taken the sack of Rome to mark the end, or at least the beginning of the end, of the Italian Renaissance, and the start of the Counter-Reformation. We shall return to the Counter-Reformation later on in this episode. But first I would like to take a brief time out to pursue the tale of the battle between Christendom and the Ottoman Empire, as it played out across the 16th century. For, though the Turks may have fallen back from Vienna, they were hardly defeated. Indeed, in occupation of half of Hungary, there remained an ever-present danger on the Holy Roman Empire's southeast flank, and would indeed be back at the gates of Vienna in the next century. 1583, if you are anxious to know. In the 16th century, however, the focus of conflict shifted further south, as the two empires vied for control of the Mediterranean. The showpiece battle in these decades of struggle was fought at sea, just off the Gulf of Corinth at Lepanto, in 1571. Lepanto resulted in an epic victory for the combined naval forces of Christendom, commanded by Don John of Austria. Don John in the G.K. Chesterton poem, Don Juan, I suppose, more correctly. As a schoolboy, I recall being puzzled by the idea of a an Austrian admiral. But of course the title means only that he was a a Habsburg prince, a bastard son of Charles V, raised at the Spanish court and put in command by his half-brother, Philip II. Charles by this stage was dead, and his vast empire had been demerged into the Spanish and Austrian wings, with Charles's son Philip running the former and his brother Ferdinand in charge of the latter. Though demerged, Austria and Spain would normally work together, and Lepanto was a rare moment of pan-Christian cooperation. It was the culmination of a 50-year struggle for mastery of the Mediterranean, and though tactically a, a Christian triumph, it prefaced a sort of strategic draw. Successive sultans had advanced their empire up the Danube, yes, reaching the very walls of Vienna in 1529, but a few years earlier the young sultan Suleiman had opened a second front against the Christians, by driving the Knights of St. John out of Rhodes, where they had installed themselves when finally expelled from the Holy Land a couple of hundred years earlier, and where their piratical activities had become increasingly intolerable. A negotiated surrender took place on New Year's Day 1523, with the Knights departing with dignity and their iconic relic, 
the pickled arm of John the Baptist. Soon afterwards, Charles V gave the Malta as a new base, for the annual rent of a falcon. Across from Malta, North Africa harboured the Barbary pirates, as it had since Roman times. Pompey the Great made his name suppressing them, and would until the early 19th century, when they became an early scalp of the US Marine Corps. Their battle hymn talks of the halls of Montezuma and the shores of Tripoli. Christians trembled at the nickname of their leader, Barbarossa, so much so that when his dark-haired younger brother succeeded him, he henned his beard to keep the myth alive. He also did a deal with Constantinople, whereby, combining Barbary expertise and Turkish resources, the Sultan became a naval power. These were the days of galley warfare. Manpower for the oars was a constant preoccupation, requiring constant raiding of infidel territory to collect slaves. It is estimated that the Barbary pirates in one winter alone took 6,000 captives off Italy's shores, and the Christians, Knights of St. John, Genoese and Venetians, Spaniards, of course reciprocated whenever opportunity arose. So the struggle for mastery of the Mediterranean had its own momentum, and the advantage came and went. In 1535, Charles V captured Tunis, Cue great rejoicings and a dozen enormous celebratory Flemish tapestries. With a splendid new gold supply just arriving from Peru, conquered by Pizarro in 1533, to keep the German bankers at bay, things were looking up for the emperor. A few years later, after a big defeat off Preveza at the mouth of the Adriatic, treachery by the Genoese was alleged, and after a, a failed assault on Algiers, and the spectacle of the Barbary fleet being provided with winter quarters in the French port of Toulon, Francis I had long been flirting with a Turkish alliance against the Habsburgs, things were looking much grimmer. Matters took a decisive turn when Suleiman felt strong enough to launch an amphibious assault on Malta in 1565. The knights mounted an heroic resistance. Christian aid, a Spanish fleet, eventually arrived... The Turks withdrew with great losses, and Suleiman died the following year, just as Pius V assumed the papacy. The need for Christians to combine against their common Turkish enemy had been a commonplace of European diplomatic discussion since the fall of Constantinople. You may recall a proposal in those days by the King of Bohemia for a European Union. The trouble was, A, that Paris was never going to cooperate in an arrangement, the Holy League or Holy Alliance, that in effect cemented Habsburg hegemony, and B, that the cheerleader really needed to be the Pope. Not an easy assignment, post-Luther. Pius V was up to the challenge. Almost miraculously, he got Habsburgs, in practice, mainly Philip II of Spain, Philip's cousin, the Emperor Maximilian II, had his hands full nearer home, Genoese and Venetians, to agree on joint action before the Turks returned to the central Mediterranean in even greater force. He also got them to agree on the leadership, Don Juan, and even to dispatch the fleets they had promised. Nonetheless, there was a good deal of mutual distrust between the contingents, and a disposition to play for time. 
Philip of Spain had issued secret instructions to Don Juan to keep the Spanish ships out of harm's way, if, if at all possible. It may have been only the Farmagusta atrocity that tipped the Allies into finally seeking out and confronting the Ottoman fleet. Like all new sultans, Suleiman's successor had to prove his mettle with military victory, especially after the debacle at Malta. So he determined to take Cyprus off the Venetians. Shades here of Othello. All went well, and another Rhodes was in prospect. Chivalrous surrender and departure of the last holdout garrison in Farmagusta. But somehow the choreography went awry, resulting in the Venetian commander being first mutilated and then skinned alive by a Jewish butcher. The skin was then stuffed and paraded. When this news reached the Allied fleet, the previously lukewarm Venetians became hot for revenge. They got it at Lepanto, where 40,000 mainly Turks died and a 100 ships were destroyed. Participants, including the young Cervantes, who lost a hand, knew they had survived a naval battle of unprecedented scale and major significance. The significance, in fact, was perhaps less than initially expected. The Venetians, now at constant risk of being the trampled grass when empires fought, were glad to sort out a peace deal with the Sultan, and Philip was ready in 1580 to follow suit, allowing him to redirect his attention to the battle against Protestantism in Northern Europe. The Mediterranean settlement was in essence what we see today. Islamic control of the eastern and southern shores, Christian of the northern and western, with peace but also a sharper dividing line, less tolerance, for example, of minority communities between the two. Something close to torpor was to fall over the Mediterranean for the next couple of hundred years, until Napoleon appeared to stir things up again. The tides of history flowed elsewhere, and the Mediterranean became something of a backwater. But we must now return to the heart of Europe, and the struggle developing for its soul, as church and emperor sought to mount a counter-offensive against Luther's devastatingly successful Protestant revolution. There was no particular mystery about what the church needed to do to respond to the Reformation, as in centuries past, when its authority had faltered, the strategy was to clean up its act, tighten internal discipline, and come down hard on dissent and heresy. But there are always good reason for inaction. So it was not until 1545 that the necessary church council was convened in Trent, in northern Italy, where, no coincidence, the emperor's writ ran. The council broadly did what was expected of it, it decreed a slew of internal reforms, addressing, for example, the education of priests and the morals of convents, whilst reaffirming doctrine where Luther had challenged it, not least the role of saints and relics, and the celibacy of the priesthood, something that Luther had contested in the most direct possible way by himself marrying and fathering six children. Proceedings, however, were hardly dynamic, being stretched over 18 years, three papacies, and the retirement and death of Charles V. Meanwhile, however, other moves were afoot, including the formation in 1540 of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, by a Spanish former soldier, Ignatius of Loyola, run with military discipline 
this new religious order was conceived as a corps d'élite to spearhead the fight back against Protestantism. Tough but smart, they embraced Renaissance learning and aimed to save souls through argument and influence rather than coercion. Their colleges proliferated rapidly across Europe and they undertook much missionary work as new continents opened to Europeans. More traditional approaches were pursued by the different branches of the Inquisition, which, particularly in Spain and its empire, tended to see torture and burning as the most effective inducements to follow the true faith. But the last hundred years of Renaissance and Reformation could not be wished away, and there could be no going back to a world in which the faithful could be treated as mere flocks to be guided and fleeced by a shepherding priestly hierarchy. The lure of Protestantism was in large part its emphasis on the individual's relationship with his God, and consciously or otherwise, the Counter-Reformation recognised that the future of the Church must lie in offering its adherents a personal as well as a communal experience. Man, after all, was as much an emotional as rational being, a successful religion needed to engage his affections. The fear of hellfire had its uses, but the appeal of the saints and the hope they offered of intercession for sinners was an underexploited asset. Ass, in particular, was the sympathetic figure of the Virgin. And art and architecture must be enlisted to ensure that worshippers had an emotionally satisfying and uplifting experience, in stark contrast to the whitewashed walls of Protestant churches. The result was the birth of the Baroque, a shift away from the classicism and humanism of Renaissance art to something more elaborate, less restrained, more transcendental. Appropriately, one of its early masterpieces was the Church of Jesu in Rome, conceived by Ignatius as the mother church of the Jesuit order and housing his own resplendent tomb beneath an enormous and wholly unrestrained ball of lapis lazuli. The interior, shaped to gather worshippers together under the dome, is a riot of guilt and religious imagery, surmounted by the huge fresco of the triumph of the name of Jesus across the dome, which, thanks to Trombley effects, seems to spill down the supporting piers. The impact, even on a non-believer, is breathtaking. There are plenty of big-name artists of the early Baroque, the Flemish Rubens with his well-padded nudes, the Venetians Titian and Tintoretto, the architect and sculptor Bernini, author of the enormous bronze baldacchino or canopy beneath the dome of St Peter's. But art in the service of religion, compare the millennium before the Renaissance, or of an ideology, compare much of the 20th century, is, to a greater or lesser degree, handicapped. The Counter-Reformation, as much as the disastrous politics of the day, brought the Renaissance to a close. In finishing this episode, we must briefly return to those politics, linked though they are to the religious upheavals. Charles V's reign had turned into one long struggle to keep the Ottoman Turks at bay, and to repair as much as possible of the damage done to church and empire by the Lutheran explosion. A particular problem was the readiness of the northern princes to embrace Protestantism, precisely because of the degree of economic and political independence it promised from church and empire. 
The nationalisation of church assets by their peripheral Sweden and England was bad enough, but the real cancer was at the very heart of the empire in Germany, where the Elector of Saxony led a group of dissenting princes to form their own league in defence of their independence. Warfare and negotiation dragged on, until eventually a disheartened Charles was induced to agree the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, which ratified the principle, Cuius Regio, Aeus Religio, that is, the ruler determines the official religion in his own domain. The following year, Charles announced his retirement. His career fired by the dream of universal monarchy, was ending in failure. Within two years, he was dead in his Spanish monastery. The vast Habsburg territories which he had controlled were now to undergo demerger, with the Holy Roman Empire and Austria passing to his brother Ferdinand, who was also king of Bohemia, Hungary and Croatia in his own right, and Spain and its overseas empire, with the Italian kingdoms and Milan going to son Philip. A sense that his country was now no longer held in such a tight Habsburg vice may have encouraged the French king to sign a treaty definitively finishing the Italian wars in 1559. Taken together with the Augsburg Compromise, the scene would seem set for a new period of relative stability in Europe. Huh? Well, if only... We'll see how that works out in the next episode. I do hope you'll choose to join me.